Black people just love to bring up race all the time. We don't. I swear to God, this shit is exhausting. But look at what we have to deal with. Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, social media director here at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Jaron Keith Gaynor, managing editor at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, is COVID-19's impact on the Black community proof of our nation living in two Americas? We about to go there today. But before we get into the show, you already know how we roll over here. Jaren, tell me what's been on your mind this week. So I have an update on my dating life. We share some things on this show, and I think it's only right that we continue to share on the show. And I've been getting to know one particular person that I met an app. I'm not going to say which one because we're not getting paid for it. <laughs> 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 but I wanted to highlight my experience getting to know this individual because I've learned through this experience the importance of slowing down. Mm. In previous relationships and situationships, I moved very quickly. And I find that a lot of people tend to do that. I have a few friends who have been coming to me for to vent or for advice. Mm. And a lot of times I'm like two weeks in, three weeks in, like slow down. You don't have to rush into anything. It's important to really get to know a person. And like guy I'm talking to, he's very reserved. And so it takes him a long time to open up. And I'm an open book. I pretty much, you know, I'll say anything. I'll share whatever. And it's been a learning experience. So slow down the pace and understand that it's really about building a connection with the person. It's not a race. You don't have to rush to declare it's a relationship or if it's exclusive or if it's not. You can just take your time and get to know the person. And we haven't met yet in mm-hmm. person we video chatted we haven't even exchanged numbers okay apparently like he's just very careful and so he wants to keep it on the app and mm-hmm. continue to get to know each other and every day the connection grows and it builds and i'm not saying that i found my soulmate mm-hmm. but i have high prospects for this person because he has the right the right temperament he's, he's very disciplined as i've learned through interacting with him and i'm excited about the future of my dating life even if it's not with this guy i'm learning that there's power in slowing things down and taking your time and really getting to know the person to see if they fit into your ideals. Like when you say, I want X, Y, and Z, for me, I wanted a man who is very spiritual, a person who is obviously intelligent, someone who's open-minded and compassionate. And I think I found some of those things. In the past, I would see some red flags and Mm -hmm. ignore those red flags and be like, all right, well, we go together. We know we in this. And then you ignore those things. And then six months down the line, a year, down the line, sometimes two years down the line, you realize that that thing you kept ignoring that might be a red flag was the thing that's going to end up blowing up your relationship in the first place. So you're better off being honest up front and then also taking your time to see if you're really sure about this person. Because once you decide to continue to involve your emotions into it, and if you move in with the person or you decide to be exclusive, I mean, you can always decide to walk away, but you're kind of locked in and you feel this pressure to make it work. And I'm learning from my mistakes and I'm optimistic mystic but yeah feel good about it well good and jerry might have a bay all right <laughs> <laughs> i'm loving it i'm loving it well mine is what's been on my mind this week is very petty and that's fine it's okay i don't mind at all i have a sweatshirt that says i'm proud to be petty so that's fine but what i wanted to talk about <laughs> really just cuss some people out y'all gonna stop ruining shows okay i need you to stop ruining shows griot fam listeners if you are a person who oh here's the season finale or whatever the series finale of WandaVision and you take your ass to Twitter the day it comes out like here it is 
4 a.m. on a Friday and here you are, boom, da, 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 revealing all of the plot points. I'm going to ask you to drop your location so I can come find you. I'm sick of it. I'm real, real sick of it. It's one thing if it was like married at first sight or even insecure, like shows that are on at the time and you're like, okay, I know I have to remove myself from social media then. But these on-demand shows that we're all loving, that we, you know, it, yes, I want to watch, I want to enjoy, blah, blah, blah. And y'all just be jumping on here. Listen, WandaVision is one of the best damn shows I've seen in a very long time. It's creative. It's amazing. It just finished. Like, and y'all are terrible. Like, spoiler alert, dog. Like, come on. I need y'all to stop. Stop it. Cut it out. Okay. I already knew how I care a lot. And I ain't even watched the bigger movie by the time I already knew how how it ended. Y'all are crazy. You need to stop. Please. For the betterment of all. Okay. And while we can enjoy this binge watching extravaganza, (laughs) I would like us to be able to do so without being complete a-holes and ruining shows. Come on, y'all. Stop it. Cut it out. I will sign that. It's hard in this climate where like you have these on-demand shows and you can watch 10 episodes straight back-to-back on Netflix, for example. I've definitely gone on Twitter and seen some spoilers for shows that I watch and it's not a good feeling. I mean, granted, when you see it, you don't know what it looks like, but if you already know the plot, it just ruins the experience. I think that we need to figure out some type of proper etiquette. I know people get really excited and want to share, but maybe like just text your friends when you talk about the scene. Don't go on Twitter. Leave it to the text because now here I am. I have to mute WandaVision <laughs> so that it can't show up on my thing because y'all want to talk about it. Like, this is ridiculous. But yes, let's get into a little bit more of a serious part of our show. So for our audience, if you didn't know, March 11th is going to mark the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization officially declaring COVID-19 as a global pandemic. And coincidentally, March 13th, just two days later, marks the one-year anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder at the hands of law enforcement. The fact that our communities are mourning and dealing with the double traumas of a health and racial pandemic is unsurprising, but it's still a lot to handle emotionally and mentally. In the midst of a health crisis that disproportionately affects the Black community, we're also experiencing this collective trauma that is police brutality and the disregard of Black bodies. In 1967, a year before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he made a speech at Stanford University astutely describing how our nation is actually two Americas. The double pandemics our communities continue to face, I believe, proves Dr. MLK's point as true. Fact is, experiences in this country are differently marked due to racial inequities, and we've been seeing it play out front and center since the very beginning. Let's get into it. But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality integrated education a reality. And so today we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality.
So, Shauna, you know, I have to say there's one thing that stands out the most about the coronavirus pandemic is that it has exposed the racial disparities in our healthcare system. Even though before COVID-19, Black Americans have been sounding the alarm about these disparities for a very long time. However, it was the pandemic that really magnified these disparities, I think, to more widespread to Americans. Have these disparities showed up in your personal life? Absolutely. There are times where I'll say for myself, I am very adamant about only having black doctors. And I'm very serious about that. It can be challenging depending on your needs and what you need. But I've found that there were times with white doctors who they don't listen. (laughs) And really, they just don't. And sometimes that even applies to other doctors who are not necessarily white, but they're non-black. And I've had to take moments in which you're like, okay, are you not listening to me because you think that you're the professional and, you know, I don't know my own damn body (laughs) or I've made up something or these symptoms or something like that in my mind? Or are you just entrenched in medical bias, which inherently the medical community does have a racial bias alongside it. Even something as simple as, I believe there was a med student who had taken the TikTok at the, I'm going to say last summer. Yeah, like right around George Floyd. And she was exploring a really exposing a lot of the racial disparities or rather racial biases that were occurring in the medical field. So say for instance, I think there was one video that she had put up about like, you know, if you had to go get like your liver, if you need like a liver transplant, for instance, and I wish I actually had like medical knowledge instead of, you know, Grey's Anatomy, because then I could tell you these exact things, these terms, but essentially there is a equation, I guess, that to determine whether or not if someone should be eligible to get on the transplant list. And it kind of depends on how severe their symptoms are. Problem is, is that the medical community, instead of saying like, let's just say the magical number is 50, right? In order to get on this transplant list, in order to get help, in order to get whatever specific treatment that you need, the magical number is 50. White man can have that number 50. He's on the list. White woman had that number 50. She's on the list. Black people and brown people, because oh yeah, well, you know, environmental factors, we're going to actually require that the black people, they're going to need 65 because their 65 is akin to our 50. I beg your pardon? Like, it's insane, you know what I mean? When you think of things like that. As a graduate of Spelman College, and I think I've talked about it on the show before, our first year at Spelman, you're required to take African diaspora in the world for two semesters, or otherwise known as ADW. One of the first things that you learn about is the hot and tot Venus, or Sarah Bartman is her actual name. It basically talks about how white people in the very racist medical community essentially was just disgusting as it relates to black women and our bodies and menstruation, all of these things. And it kind of comes down to, you know what? Let's skip Sarah Bartman. Let's fast forward even a little bit. I believe that there was a study not too long ago that were asking doctors, medical doctors, to basically, how do you gauge the pain of your patients? And they all said that they believed that black people could handle more pain than white people. That's maddening. It's frustrating to know that that is something that these people who you're depending upon to treat you, who you're depending upon in some instances to save your life, 
are mitigating your symptoms, are mitigating your complaints, not listening to you. Hell, we just saw not too long ago, I'm going to say earlier this year, a black doctor who was also my soror who died. She was a doctor herself and died of COVID because her own doctors in her hospital that she works were not listening to her. They were sending her home when she's like, yo, I deal with COVID patients all the time. I'm telling you what I need. These are the medications that I need. And they're denying her medications, almost trying to treat her like if she's some kind of drug addict. What the hell? And if that can happen to another person who is in the medical field, but just simply because of her blackness, the fact that she is a black woman, that you can just ignore her like that. So the fact that she went and did those buku years in medical school, got certified, is a reputable physician, means nothing at the end of the day, because what they see is color, plain and simple. And which is why I get very irritated at the idea of color blindness, is why I get very irritated at the idea of, oh, well, you know, black people just love to bring up race all the time. We don't. I swear to God, this shit is exhausting. But look at what we have to deal with. What do you think, G? When you reference that study about doctors essentially seeing black people as superhuman, you know, I got a little emotional because when I hear that, I think of our ancestors being slaves and mm-hmm. being used as physical free labor and being whipped and being abused and still having to power through life and figure out how to have some type of semblance of a quality life despite the conditions that they were under. And it shows you that generation after generation, that's taught for a doctor in modern times to think that way. You get that from your forefathers Mm -hmm. and your foremothers. This belief that Black people are not human, that we can endure more pain because we endure slavery, we endure racial violence after slavery, we continue to endure racial violence even today. And I think it's the reason why police officers see Black people as non-human. And this made-up belief that they should fear Black people more than they fear anybody else, and they get trigger-happy whenever they're on the field. And so it shows you that racism is undergirded in every aspect of American life. And COVID-19 just happened to expose the healthcare factor. I remember when, a year ago, when we were having to grapple with COVID-19 and seeing the news stories every day, every week of Black people, because in the beginning, it seemed like it was only Black people dying from COVID. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why. The data shows that Black people are sicker mm-hmm. and dying much faster than any other racial group. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, when there's a global pandemic, let alone a national one, who are going to be the ones who die disproportionately? Black mm-hmm. people. And this is what we saw. And it shouldn't have taken COVID-19 for white America and non-Black people to see the disparities. But like all things, when it comes to racial justice for Black Americans, we have to literally bleed out and die on the ground and be filmed being killed for the rest of America to see that. There was a study from the National Academy of Medicine and it found that racial ethnic minorities receive lower quality health care than white people, even when insurance status, income, age, severity, and conditions are comparable, which means even though we know that Black people don't have adequate insurance, many of them don't have insurance at all because they can't afford it. To be poor is costly. You can't afford to do anything. You can't pay for premiums. That's why President Obama enacted Obamacare in the first place. And yet, even if you do happen to be lucky enough to have health insurance, there's no guarantee that the service you're going to get from your physician is going to be adequate because of these biases that many physicians might not even realize that they have. You know, I think it's important to note that just because you might feel like you're not racist as a physician doesn't mean that you're not implementing racism in the work that you do. 
Mm-hmm. And so when you see a black woman, whether she's pregnant or whether she's sick, and you think that, oh, I'll just prescribe some aspirin or send her back home because you don't want to have to do the job. And I think it's important for doctors to begin to reframe and relearn medicine. I think it's important that medical schools begin to teach. I didn't go to medical school, so maybe the other <laughs> But it doesn't seem like they teach enough about the racial disparities and how racism is embedded in medicine. It's embedded in everything, in every institution, in every system in America. And so until physicians begin to learn this history, it will continue to be repeated. But it's also important that we ensure that people from Black communities are going to med school and becoming doctors. We need more Black doctors because we know that we're more inclined to trust them. And so there's a direct line and connection between slavery and healthcare disparities. And there's a direct line between distrust in medicine and where we are today with the vaccine. Because mm-hmm. now we have a vaccine that could potentially save lives, but Black people, rightfully, some don't trust it. Mm-hmm. And I've watched recently of Wendy Williams doing an interview with Dr. Oz and saying she will not take the vaccine. Now, while personally, I think it's irresponsible for Wendy Williams to say that on that kind of platform, she also has the right to say what she feels because we've just seen time and time again, not just because of Tuskegee and because of Henrietta Lack, but because you probably know, you have probably experienced it yourself or your mother has or your father has. We see it every day how our family members go to the hospital for something and they just send them back and tell them that there's nothing there Mm -hmm. or they don't run an x-ray to see what's happening underneath they just kind of make these general conclusions and not realizing that people's lives are on the line this is serious like if you get into medicine you have to truly care about the patient no matter their color so it's really important that there's policy implemented to protect black americans because it's real and it's not going away until we do something about it until they do something about it and two things before we wrap up that part one the fact that wendy williams even was talking to dr oz is beyond me he's a hack but fine you know that's fine cool that's one but two the doctor in my soul who passed away who i mentioned was actually dr susan moore of india And I know just like hearing about her story, I just wanted to, you know, I don't know if any of her family or friends or anything like that are listening, but especially to my other sorors who knew and loved Dr. Moore, just sending you guys love and praying for the Moore family. Now, with that said, we are always talking about protecting our peace here on Dear Culture. But real quick, G, I want to know how was your mental health impacted during this landmark year? That's a really good question. I think I'm still figuring that out, to be honest. I spoke to my therapist recently and I was explaining how working in news and seeing these headlines every day and having to navigate and engage such uh, heavy content and just seeing all this death. And sometimes you can become a bit detached. I found myself becoming very detached to some of these stories that are impacting real lives. And I tried to not look at it through a lens of just a headline, but it's difficult because I think I've seen it so much way before COVID that you become numb to it. I think a lot of Black people can relate to just being numb to the heartbreak of us shouting to the rooftops, what is wrong with this country and what racism is causing to Black Americans. And it seems like even when we do that, even when we march and protest, nothing really gets done. And so... 
It's been hard. I've been numb. I've been sad. And I think it only magnified because COVID forced us to be indoors and I live alone. So it's not like I have anybody to like bounce these things off of. So really all I have is, I mean, I have family and friends to call and whatnot, but I don't have anyone to like be there in the physical form and be like, we're going to get through this. It's been really, really hard on me to have to witness what we continue to witness through this pandemic. But it's also given me hope because Seeing the Black Lives Matter protests last summer and seeing institutions start to make commitments to undo the wrongs of America's racism, to provide funding to HBCUs and to Black businesses and to address inequities. When we have a president who says we're going to lead with equity in everything that we do, that gives me hope. And so that helps my where I am mentally and spiritually. But it's hard. You know, I'm a very optimistic person, but... Every day I live in fear because I'm just like, what if my mother goes to the doctor? My mother actually tested positive for COVID. Thank God she's okay now. But at the time, you know, I was very scared because she went to the doctor. Well, she called the doctor rather and told them that she was having trouble breathing. And they told her to wait it out. And I was like, no, call them back. (laughs) Because I've seen this story play out in news Mm -hmm. a lot this past year. And Mm -hmm. I was like, my mother is not going to be one of those black women who go to the hospital or Mm -hmm. call the doctor and they send her back home. And then she got the bit dies because of inadequate physician care. So I have that fear. I know many of us, if not all of us, have that fear. And there's no real way, there's no magic way to navigate through this from a mental health perspective. You just have to just kind of take each day at a time and pray that God just gives you the strength to endure. And then also do the work to hold these institutions accountable, which is what we are doing. We need more of our white and black allies to speak up more and do more. Because again, black people are already coming from a disadvantaged place. Mm -hmm. And us advocating for ourselves, as we've seen over the few centuries that we've been dealing with racism in this country... It has not been enough. And so my thing is, like, what do we do? Like, what more can we do? And so I literally pray almost every day for this country, but more importantly for Black America, because I know that it's hard. Because not only are we dealing with racism, whether it's policing or in healthcare, but we have to figure how that impacts us on a mental level. And it's hard. There are people who are suicidal because they don't have jobs. Mm-hmm. And so you have financial instability. You might not have health care. You're scared to go outside because the police might kill you. So that would make any black person want to like break, no matter what your background. And so it's been really hard, I have to admit. I think for me, first off, we need to acknowledge the fact that this past year. Actually, honestly, I would say from Kobe, (laughs) from the time of Kobe, this has been a year of trauma, you know, and like we need to recognize that like it's global trauma. And I can say for me, my mental health went to absolute shit this past year. I found ways to kind of figure out how to navigate it, but there have definitely been episodes of what the hell is this? I have anxiety and anxiety and depression. Thankfully, let me knock on wood when I say this, you know, thankfully the depression part. Surprisingly, has it been so overwhelming as like just a regular 2019 (laughs) probably was, which is strange in the grand scheme of things, but my anxiety has gone to a thousand. So in April, I suffer from seasonal allergies and seasonal asthma. So COVID hit in March. In April, here come the allergies, right? And I'm over here like sinus allergies and I always have like upper respiratory things happening during allergy 
allergy season. So I would be in my bed and I'm like gasping for breath or I can hear, like I'm waking myself up in the middle of the night because my breath is like labored and I can hear my labored breathing. And so of course I'm like, dear Jesus, <laughs> don't tell me I have caught the Rona. I was like isolating myself from my parents. If I did go upstairs to their apartment, I was like wearing a mask. I was very intentional on that. You know, then we saw our coworker, Biba, who lost her mother, her aunt and her grandmother to this terrible disease. And so I'm like, okay, I have to be extra careful around my mom and my dad. You know what I mean? I was doing all types of crazy stuff. I'm talking like checking my temperature like once every hour, you know, I'm like looking for whatever conspiracy theory type of remedies there are. I was like, should I be drinking cod liver oil, elderberries? What do I need? Like (laughs) freaking myself out. I'll say mental health wise, I've also become a lot more angry, a lot more angry, angry at the fact that yes, we do have to deal with here goes racism again, coming to kick our ass. But when it came to the pandemic, there's still people who deny that this thing exists. You had that terrible orange man telling people it'll just disappear one day. You have these assholes who are anti-maskers who are running up on people in supermarkets to stage these fake ass protests of mask mandates. The idea that like Australia, I think just had a cookout not too long ago. Mask list. They're chilling out there. All right. No, if Australia and New Zealand wanted them. <laughs> they were out here just chilling. And I'm like, as a nation, we'll probably never get there. And if we do get there, it'll take years because Americans are inherently selfish and stupid and self-centered and self-serving. To see Atlanta is open the F up right now. All-Star Weekend is happening and you have a list. These are where all these rappers and celebrities and blah, blah, blah. This is where they're going to be. They're going to be at blah, blah, blah. This is going to be staying open until 4 a.m. during All-Star Weekend. Are you friggin' kidding me? In black-ass Atlanta? When you see that this thing is killing us and it's killing us because of environmental factors, it's killing us because of racial bias, it's killing us because there's no freaking room in hospitals for people to even get treated for regular degular shit. Our doctors are overwhelmed. Our nurses are overwhelmed. And you open this city up, this black ass city for what? For entertainment purposes, to act as though shit hasn't changed, nothing has happened, is insane to me. To see that fool, Governor Abbott of Texas, who wants to sit up here and, oh yeah, we got a big announcement coming, everything is open. Are you kidding me? Deadass? Really? This is where we are? Word? When your state is the next state behind California, where people are dying at astronomical numbers, where COVID cases are still increasing, you have Florida, Rick DeSatan, is who I like to call him, is out here opening stuff up, lying about COVID numbers, like, oh, it is maddening. It is maddening. And then on the other side of that, what else has to contribute to pissing me off are you have Black people who are out here dropping dumbass YouTube videos from people who know nothing from people who do not go to school, who did not <laughs> do anything in the medical community, who want to sit up here and talk about, oh yeah, well y'all shouldn't be taking a vaccine because blah, 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 and Bill Gates this, and whoop, 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 whoop. You sound stupid. You sound stupid. 
stupid. And for you to sit up here and fix your black mouth to tell another black person that they shouldn't be doing something. Now, granted, I'm not saying that I don't understand people's skepticism. I'm over here trying to convince my mother and my father to get this damn vaccine. Me, I'm like, vacuum me up. Put it in my arm. I don't care. This is where we are at this point. If I grow a third titty because of it, I'm gonna just be a third titty broad with who doesn't have to wear a mask. That's where I'm at with it right now. But how irresponsible it is to go on these social media platforms and you're spinning non-facts. You're spinning lies. You're spinning memes that you came across on freaking Twitter or your auntie's Facebook page. It's trash. And you have people who don't even want to educate themselves to know better. It's insane. It's maddening. It is frustrating. And honestly, in terms of mental health, what it has made me feel, I don't need to be on this earth. And when I say that, that's not like a, oh, I want to die. These are not suicidal ideations. I mean, I literally need to find a machine to get me the hell off of this planet. Can I be like WandaVision? Can I be like Wanda Maximoff and go to another multiverse? Where is Dr. Strange to help me? Because I have clearly been put in the wrong place. And that's my rant. (laughs) What you have passionately and comically articulated is really these two narratives right now in America. This particular conversation is about the severity of the pandemic and those who believe that this is a real pandemic and that it's a danger to us all and that we should wear masks and be careful. And then you have the other side, which is predominantly white people, I might add, who are like, we don't need to wear masks. And You know, the Black Lives Matter movement last summer, it gave me at the time some hope because I saw so many white people and non-Black people marching with us and advocating for us. But then, you know, we see what we're seeing now in Texas and what we saw in Georgia and continue to see in Georgia, which is, nope, there are other white people, millions of them in America, who want to act like this pandemic is not real because they're so concerned about opening up businesses and the economy. I think that that's really the problem with this country is that we're so driven by economics. And when you're Black in America, it doesn't really matter because most of us historically don't come from money anyway. And so mm-hmm. it's really about quality of life. And it really speaks to this idea that we mentioned at the top of the show about we being in two Americas. What are your thoughts about this idea of us living in two different Americas? Oh, we've always lived in two different Americas, dear. <laughs> always. You know what, Jaren? You just gave me an episode idea for an episode in the future because quite frankly, we need to talk about how low-key growing up as little black children, we lack the ability to have innocence. And the reason why is because our parents, if they're any, if they're worth a damn, (laughs) if they're any good, try to prepare us for the real world, right? So, you know, I was never allowed to believe in Santa Claus, for instance. I was told from the start, no white man is coming in this apartment. Everything that you got here is from me and your daddy. Figure it out. <laughs> like, so that's who you need to be pleasing. Santa Claus, whatever. And I remember, I think as young as maybe six or seven is when I had to have the conversation with my mother and my father about how you have to work twice as hard to get half of what they have. And I don't think it ever really hit me like that until, again, elementary school. And I was in a school that was predominantly, you know, black people. Shout out to PS241. Hey, Brooklyn. Uh, You know, and I remember that there was this one white student, one white student who 
let's just say a lot of concessions were being made for this one white student. I was also a person who I'm very competitive. I'm very animated, as you can tell. So I was doing debate team and storytelling competitions very young and realizing like, hmm, and not even on some conceited mess, but I know I did better than little Mary Sue over there. How the hell she walking off with this trophy and here I am second pl- second place? We don't keep second place trophies in my household. Shout out to Serena Williams. We don't do that. So, I mean, it's something that I've always known. And even, I'll take it back even further, you know, and kind of dating myself a little bit here. I don't remember Rodney King, but I remember Abner Louima. If you were a kid and you were in New York, especially in Brooklyn, and you knew Abner Louima was, I think he was Haitian, a Haitian American man who the police brutalized him. I'm talking about went and took this man into a restroom and took the handle of a plunger and penetrated him with it. The NYPD. And I remember even as a kid and I saw how angry my mother and my father were. And I remember just being like, well, why did they do that? And my father and my mother kind of sat me down and were like, that's just what black people have to deal with, unfortunately. And shout out to parents, in all honesty, black parents, because I cannot imagine the conflict, the internal conflict that you have to feel because you want your kids to know, yes, cops are supposed to be the good guys, right? You're supposed to be going (laughs) to the police if something's wrong, if something happened, if, if a crime has been committed, you're supposed to be going to the police. But how do you tell little black children Yes, go to the police when these are the same police who shot and killed Tamir Rice. You know what I mean? Like a 12 year old for playing with a BB gun. You arrived in under 10 seconds. You have shot and killed a child, a little black child. How do you resolve that? I mean, and even now where I know that there's two different Americas. It's so fun to me to watch things like on Twitter, and I'm sure you've seen this, Jaren. On Twitter, it'll be something like either a skit that someone does or someone just says something funny and you're like, yo, we all grew up in the same damn house, right? Like, (laughs) you know, your mother's like, don't come in and out this house. You either in or you out letting all my good air. Like, we've all heard that. I don't care if you Caribbean. I don't care if you just black, whatever. We've all heard those things. And I never like to tread in the white people water white people Twitter is boring as hell they just talk about like Taylor Swift and they're they're boring they're truly boring (laughs) but I always find it funny if I like see tweets like that and I'm seeing this again here goes this wealth of black people who are like yes I've had that same experience my mama has said these same things to me my mama has said when we get in the store don't you touch nothing don't ask for nothing and then there's always like one or two white people who are like oh my god I've never experienced this yes dummy Yeah, because you're not black. Kind of what happens. Whatever. What I will say, though, with there being two Americas, I'm going to tell you this. Black America is dripped AF, okay? We are so cool. This is why we're always imitated. And, you know, it sucks that it has to be that way. But, yeah. What do you think, G? I like that you took it back to childhood because that really resonated with me. It kind of hit me because I think we all can remember being a child and being innocent mm-hmm. and believing that we could be anything we wanted to be. We can do whatever we wanted to do. And we felt safe and protected if you were fortunate to live in a household that was safe. Mm-hmm. And we all can remember that moment where everything shifted. 
Mm-hmm. You know, learn that things are different for you if you're brown. And for me, it was very clear to me just watching TV. <laughs> I, I saw mostly white people, the cartoons I watched. And when I went out to, in my community, it was mainly us Black people. In Bed-Stuy, it was predominantly Black neighborhood. And we didn't see a lot of white people. And it becomes very clear to Black children that there's two different Americas, even if they don't have the language mm-hmm. to express what they see. Because <laughs> the only white people growing up in Brooklyn, the only white people you saw were the Hasidic Jews. You saw the yarmulke and the long curls and that was it. Absolutely. And I think about my childhood and when did I realize how segregated this country was? Mm-hmm. And for me, it became clear, I guess, somewhere around high school, because when I would venture out from my neighborhood and go to Manhattan, whether it was to go to the movies with my friends mm-hmm. or go out to restaurants and, you know, we would go to Times Square because that was like the thing when you were a teenager, even though I hate Times Square now as an adult. But you would go out there and then you would see how maybe the salesperson in the store treats you when you want to buy something. Mm. You know, we all know when you were a black kid, teenager in New York and you go to the mall or elsewhere from the security guard to the salesperson Mm -hmm. to the police, Mm -hmm. you feel their eyeballs just like to zero in on you. And you think to yourself, we're just having fun. We're just living our lives. We're not doing anything wrong. And it became more clear the older I got when I went to, obviously, you know, we are a spell house. So I went to Morehouse College for undergrad, but I went to Columbia University for grad school. And that was my first time being in a classroom with and being a minority because mm-hmm. I went to private school Catholic school but mm-hmm. in New York it's predominantly black and Hispanic mm-hmm. and so I got to see firsthand just how different we were our frame of reference their jokes were different the shows that they watched were different the music that they listened to was different boring <laughs> But I also realized how differently the professors treated them versus me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there were a lot of concessions made for my white counterparts in the classroom. And I had a professor, one particular professor who was, I think, just like really hard on me for no reason. Mm -hmm. And I look back on that class and I look at some of my classmates and I would venture to say humbly that I'm far more successful now. (laughs) (laughs) But it's such a reality for all of us. And we know that there are two Americas. Mm -hmm. I think that because white Americans are so privileged and they don't have to see our plight. They don't Mm -hmm. have to notice that we're somewhere on the side because they get to participate in the center of everything. Mm -hmm. And so when we speak up and we say racism, they go, racism? You're You're not enslaved anymore. But it's so much deeper than that because you can't give people freedom and say, okay, we're not going to put you in chains no more, but we're not going to give you no land. Mm-hmm. We're not going to give you any money to have economic stability. We're just going to let you just figure it out. And then what happened? They became indentured servants. They had to work for the white man and get paid for it, but was paid very little. And so this has gone on for so long. And so it gets to a point where when is white America going to acknowledge and realize that we live in two Americas? Mm-hmm. One, I would love to say, because again, I try to be optimistic, I would love to say that some of what we're seeing right now in 2021 is a sign that white America is getting it and that they will continue to evolve. But it's frustrating because it's like, why should we have to wait for them to be seen as human beings, to get what we deserve, to get full civil rights, right? We're now seeing laws being passed in Georgia to circumvent access to voting, which should be a basic right for every American. But because Black voters did what 
what they did in the 2020 election, what do they do? The first thing that they did was to figure out how they can strategically take our rights away when our ancestors fought and bled so much for those rights. It's really disbelieving. And so the inner child in me, my heart still breaks Mm -hmm. because I really wish that the America that I thought I lived in was real. And it's not. You know, I'm in a petty mood today. What's another example of living in two Americas? So Jaren, pre-COVID, when we were back in the office here in New York, so Griot fam, we're going to let y'all know a little bit of business. Okay. So (laughs) Entertainment Studios, owned by Byron Allen, Entertainment Studios owns the Weather Channel, as well as the Griot. Now, the Griot is just black, black, blackity black, right? Great. And the Weather Channel is not. It is predominantly othered. Now, we, at one point in time, were sharing office space with the Weather Channel team. And it's always very funny. So if you've ever gone and looked at old videos or anything like that on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the If you've ever gone and looked at that and you happen to see a white person in the background or some blonde hair shuffling around in the background, that's not us, okay? That is not the Griot. That is Weather Channel who happens to share that bit of office space. The clearest example of two different Americas. I don't remember what day it was, but there was something that happened. Yet another Black person in the endless list of Black people had died. And the grill staff, we were talking about this case. And right behind me, what were the white folks at the Weather Channel talking about? Juicing celery. I said, I know you lying to me. We talking about racial injustices and you talking about juicing celery? <laughs> what time? <clears throat> white people in your bland conversations. Y'all are boring. I'm sorry. Anywho, but I'm glad that you touched a little bit on this, Jared, you know, in terms of, is there a way to kind of mitigate the two Americas? Are we becoming more divided? I definitely agree with you in terms of like, there are certain things that are getting better, but they're always up to their old tricks. <laughs> to try and ruin that. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you really feel like there are gradual, tangible steps being made to mitigate that? Or is it a lost cause? Well, (laughs) that deep side, that heavy Negro spiritual side, I felt that in my spirit. (laughs) <laughs> we mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the top of this episode because so much of this conversation goes back to his speech, The Other America, that he gave in 1967. And it really pains me to read that speech and to see that almost word for word, if an activist in 2021 said that very same speech, it would apply today. So I think that that tells us that nothing's changed, obviously. And what stood out to me from MLK in that speech was he spoke to white people who were like essentially what we would call today white liberals and then wanting to keep the status quo. And because of that, they remain silent. And so while, yes, we can talk about the racist and the KKK and whatnot, the true detriment and the true impediment to making these two Americas one are white people who maybe not hate Black people, but they have an understanding of their place in America. And they don't want to lose that place because in order to correct where we are, our social ills, we have to undo a lot of things. And it starts with on an economic level, which the majority of that speech was about economics. Because what MLK was saying is that if I don't have money to have a quality life, I have nothing. I don't have a quality education. How do you expect Black Americans to pull themselves up by the bootstraps when they come from poverty and they have inadequate school systems? And even if you are lucky enough to be Black and educated and have economic stability, there's still no guarantee that corporate America is going to give you a job. Mm. So you have bias even getting through the door and getting a job to have a quality life. 
And so how do you steer yourself toward the American dream when you don't have the keys to the ignition? And there's nothing that we can do about that. I think sometimes when you go on like Black Twitter, the Beyonce's and the Jay-Z's and, and Diddy and Oprah, they get so much flack for what they don't do, even though we know that they do a lot. Mm-hmm. But it's unfair to expect a few dozen millionaires and billionaires to solve the problems of Black America. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about the wealth that Beyonce, Jay-Z, and Oprah share, it is nothing in comparison to the many, many, many white millionaires and billionaires in this country. So it's very interesting to me that when we talk about universal health care, and they use the word socialism, or we talk about direct payments, which are really survival checks to Americans, but particularly to Black Americans who are suffering during this pandemic and you see the fight that Republicans give when it comes to providing just service to just try to survive. And they call it socialism, but it's like, we know that underneath that, what you're really saying. And you're saying that you don't want to give up your spot. They don't want to see the economics of America redistributed to everyone. Mm -hmm. So you can call it socialism, but I support it. I think that it's important that we tax the rich and the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And that money needs to be not evenly spread out, but at least there needs to be something done. Mm -hmm. And so until we handle this on a policy level because we may never change the hearts and minds of every white American, but we do have the power to enact policy to ensure that we level the playing field. And so it's really important for us to not take our foot off the gas pedal and that this space that we're in, in terms of activism, that we continue to do that. We continue to show up at the polls. Don't just let 2020 be in the rearview mirror. If every election, it's important for us to show out like we did in 2020 because I'm telling you and I'm warning y'all, the Republican Party is strategizing right now to ensure that the progress that we've made is undone. Look at the Supreme Court and look what Donald Trump was able to do. He was able to put in not one, not two, three Supreme Court justices. And that is going to have long-term implications because the House just passed some important bills recently, one being the George Floyd Justice Policing Act. And it could be passed in the Senate because they do have a slim majority there. But let Republicans get control of the Senate or the House and that can be undone. But more importantly, let a case go to the Supreme Court and watch that be undone. Look at the Voting Rights Act. It was gutted in 2013 because of conservatives in the court system. So we have a lot of work to do. And are we getting to a place of becoming one America? No. I think right now we're having conversations about possibly getting there. But it's going to take a lot more work, activism on our behalf, and a lot more cooperation with our allies and more of white liberals not being silent and getting used to being uncomfortable talking about race and accepting that the privileges that you have, that you may have to give up a little bit so that others can also have a quality life. That's not too much to ask. You know, like it makes no sense that we have the amount of billionaires that we have in this country. I don't think a billionaire should even exist. Jeff Bezos. It makes no sense. It should be an international crime for America to be as wealthy as it is and to have the level of poverty and homelessness and mental health issues and what we see with mass incarceration. It should not exist. Not in this country and not anywhere on this planet. Definitely. And I'm so glad that you pointed out like the whole idea of socialism or being called a socialist and how that's really dog whistle rhetoric. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like that's one of the things that they try to throw on her. 
Ayanna Presley. That's like what they try to throw out there. Like, oh, well, you're socialist. Quite frankly, yeah. Would I rather be a socialist or a capitalist? Mm, I'm going to lean towards the socialist side because at least I know that I'm not effing over everybody else. You know what I mean? Like, it's nuts. You know, I love that you touched on the idea of liberal whites or like I like to call them well-meaning white people. Well-meaning white people are just... They're the bane of my existence, quite frankly, because what it inevitably is, is that you don't want to feel bad <laughs> about the fact that you've been trashed for a very long time. You don't want to be held accountable for your part in it as well. This is also why I have a problem with white women and why there's a particular article out there, you know, written by me called White Women Are the Worst. They are. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like all of these things, whether or not if we're going to ever get to a place where we're mitigating those two Americas, I don't believe I'll see it in my life time. Hopefully my children or my children's children, God willing, you know, will be able to, but I don't see that. But what I think and what I am at least optimistic, surprisingly about, and I'm glad that you pointed out the economic disparity and really we have to get to the root of the economics first. Let's talk about reparations. You know, those conversations are actually happening and are at least being taken seriously right now. We are the only class of people, the only race of people who have yet to be compensated for the travesties committed against us. That's a problem. And, you know, we've talked about this before where I said, I don't care about money, (laughs) you know, but financially, yes. If you want to compensate in that kind of way, great. I believe in reparations needs to be something that is fundamental, right? So what are you doing to address, you know, mental health issues in the black community? What is going on with predatory lending? What is going on with the education system as it relates to black America? How are those things being fixed? And that's what I would like to see. Yes, Sean, it's been a really tough year. And now coming up on a year of COVID, a year of the murder of Breonna Taylor. We've been through the ringer. But I really want to end this on a positive note. And I think it's important to also say that despite health and racial pandemic, that we are resilient. And no matter how divided this country is, at least we know that Black people are always going to advocate for ourselves. And we're always going to push forward for justice. It's just who we are. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Body Complete Rx. Body Complete Rx is a Black femme-owned company that specializes in wellness and healthy living that offers everything from a wide range of plant-based vegan nutritional supplement products to apparel. In just three years, this self-funded brand created by women for women has garnered thousands of healthier and happier customers, including celebrities LaToya Luckett and Kenya Moore. Visit their website at bodycompleterx.com. That's B-O-D-Y-C-O-M-P-L-E-T-E-R-X.com. The Greer has published a list of 50 plus black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at That's G-R-I-O.com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Taluzma and co-produced by Sunda Sasan, Brenda Alexander, and Kevin Y. Brown. Oh, oh, oh.